Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, everybody, we've got a great one today, you know, for a change. And this time, I mean it. And I know that some folks are getting sick of me saying that. So, okay, Uh, today's podcast is not not good. It's not good. No, it's great. And you know why? My guest is David Axelrod, the mastermind behind Barack Obama's ascent to the presidency. Oh, there are other masterminds, David Pluff and... uh, uh, you know, Barack Obama. Barack Obama, no matter what Donald Trump says, is very smart. Uh, now, regular listeners of this podcast know that I, I took a little break, and now we're back uh, through the election, which I believe is November 3rd. And a lot of people call this the most important election of our lifetime. Actually, that was the last election, but we blew it. David and I spoke this past Monday before uh, the Republican convention, so I'm going to give you uh, my take on what I saw this past week. Jesus Christ! How sickening was that? (sighs) What can I say that you haven't already heard? Lies and fear. Lies and fear. If you're listening to this, you probably know... Those were lies. I'm afraid that he wins. And it's over. It's over. Obama was right in his speech. It's over. Democracy's over. And we know that. We know that from what he did immediately after he was acquitted. There's not much I have to tell you. Here's the thing. Here's the thing I worry about is that... uh, I watch coverage on MSNBC, on CNN, and uh, I read coverage. The the lies are massive. It's massive tonnage, tonnage of lies. Other people get their news elsewhere. We have a divided country, and I'm very concerned. I I want to talk about two lies that I haven't heard even our side mention, uh, and that is... One on tariffs in China. Uh, Trump says over and over again, China has paid tens of billions of dollars in tariffs because of me. No, China has paid nothing, not a cent in tariffs. That's not how tariffs work. Okay, let's say Best Buy is importing some Chinese TVs. Best Buy pays the tariff. And they may pass some of that on to their consumers. So the consumers are paying it. But guess who's been paying for the sanctions that he put on? The American taxpayer. And let me tell you how. I represent Minnesota. Agriculture, huge part of Minnesota's economy. 
lot of soybeans and corn. Our, we produce a lot of soybeans and corn. We export it. But China retaliated, and we stopped being able to sell soybeans and corn and other ag products to China. And what did that do? It depressed the farm economy. Farmers lost their operations. Farmers committed suicide. Now, you remember that uh, $12 billion in taxpayer money that went to farmers, which did not make farmers whole. Well, the American taxpayer paid for that. So China, nothing. American taxpayer, billions. Another one, uh, his press secretary, Kaylee McEnany. She gave a very personal speech. She introduced herself. Most of you probably know me as a supporter <laughs> of Donald Trump as a president, as opposed to saying I'm, I'm the press secretary speaking at the convention. But okay, okay. Then she told this very personal story about a pre-existing condition that she has that she inherited. And she says, I'm telling you this to tell you how much President Trump cares about protecting people with pre-existing conditions. Here's the thing. Every bill that the Republicans passed or didn't pass in the Senate did not protect people with pre-existing conditions. The Trump administration is in court trying to get rid of the ACA, which is the only thing that protects people with pre-existing conditions. So this was an enormous lie, and I, I, she knows that. She knows that. This is who they are. This is... It's just disgusting. So, everybody, please, please, please work to get Biden elected. We only have how much time? Eight weeks? Nine weeks? I need you to go out and work. One, we need you to be a poll worker. Mark Elias, our head election lawyer for Democrats, I'm very clear that that's one of the best things people can do. We need poll workers because so many of the poll workers are over 60 and over 70. Another thing, go talk to your neighbors. Go door to door. Sign up to be a volunteer. That's the most effective thing that you can do. And listen, ignore your family. Ignore your jobs. You can go door to door, wear a mask, ring the bell, go six feet away from the door, and talk to your neighbors and tell them the importance of this election. When I say ignore your family, here's the thing I know. This is what I've learned. A six-year-old child knows how to use a microwave oven. And not only that, but and here's a fact. A six-year-old child can teach a four-year-old child to use a microwave oven. And, you know, most politicians, politics is really about getting away from your family because that's why they say when they, when they you know, retire. They say, I, I want to spend more time with my family. That's how you know that. So, um, also ignore your job. <laughs> no, but, but in all seriousness, all hands on deck. Okay, everybody? Alright. David Axelrod, uh, this is a great one. And not for a change. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. 
Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that, means, that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cash back events, and it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. I am so happy this week to have uh, as my guest David Axelrod. He is a host of the X-Files. Just love his podcast. He's done over 400 episodes of the X-Files. He's just had the greatest guests you could possibly want from John Lewis through Justice Sonia Sotomayor to... Tony Fauci to Barack Obama, just everyone you'd want as a guest. And what David does is so impressive. And David, I just have to compliment you because for each interview, you just do a tremendous amount of research and, and you really talk in great depth about your guests' lives from where they came from, not just geographically, but their family history, education, early experiences, all through the big events in their lives that shape them as human beings and which inform the choices that they've made that define their careers as what we know them for. So, David, my first question to you is what have you done besides your podcasts? <laughs> in my whole life? Yeah, because it's a really great podcast. And I was wondering, how do you book all these people? How, <laughs> how do you get them to do your mm -hmm. show? Well, let me just say, and you can appreciate this, Big shout out to my staff on the research. And um, the whole conceit of the show is that we don't really know each other. We know people as public figures. We know them as politicians in many cases, but we don't know like who they really are. And I started my life as a journalist. And I think even as a political strategist, my orientation has been to be a storyteller, whether it's the story of your candidate or the story of a campaign or the story of a country. I started this uh, at a time when it was was clear we were deeply riven and I wanted to just trying to expose people as 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 human beings but uh, it's kind of a you know it's a sidelight for me I'm still uh, doing my senior commentary work at CNN I still run the Institute of Politics that I started right. at the University of uh, Chicago I've got another podcast for the election called Hacks on Tap with Mike Murphy so I'm just trying to stay out of trouble Al that's that's basically what I'm doing so the secret is research is that, is that what you're saying? I think research is really 
it's important to know where to probe and where to ask. And, and I get these thick memos before every podcast, uh, you know, 20, 20 pages or more. And, um, you know, I look for things in people's lives that are, you know, I'm doing, uh, I'm sitting down tomorrow with uh, Jim Clyburn. And there's yep. this really compelling story about his dad who he went through the seventh grade three times, not because he wasn't a good student, but because when he was growing up, seventh grade was the last grade you could attend as an African-American in South Carolina. And late, later in life, when he was he got into college and he was about to get his degree and he was denied that because he had never graduated from high school. Uh, and, you know, those kind of stories are searing. They're obviously formative for the person you're talking to, but they also illustrate what we're dealing with in this country uh, that we have to fix. These are the things, you know, when you talk about st systemic racism, I mean, there it is staring you in the face. And uh, so, you know, I, I mean, I just love it. I love learning about people. It's a great, it's a great thing to do if you are curious about people and want to know who they are. My, one of my favorites was, uh, I, I did several with Nancy Pelosi, but I asked her once, her father was, as you know, the mayor of yep, Baltimore, Baltimore and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, great, Democratic leader in that town. And um, I asked her, what did you learn growing up in that household? And she didn't bat an eye. She just said, I learned how to count. <laughs> and she said, and I, lear and I learned that I, I, oh, I, I, I hear you is not a yes. A nod of the head is not a yes. Only yes uh -huh. is yes. And you could see why she became the great legislative leader that she is, you know, because she learned those skills early. But uh, every person is just a rich uh, story. And it's uh, the, the, the challenge is to mine those bits of it that are really interesting and illuminating. And I, I, I love doing it. So you worked with Obama, right? Yes, I did for, uh, for a few years there. Yeah. Uh huh. Like from yeah. the from the time he was a state senator to the time he was president. Yeah, and a great president. And uh, before I go any further, I just want to uh, tell people that we're friends, and you've been a very good friend to me, David. Well, and I'm very grateful. And enough of that. I I I, I value that, and I appreciate it, Al. So we're recording this at a weird time, which is this is the Monday. This is the day. <laughs> it's the afternoon, of the day that the Republican convention starts. So. Um, when this airs, the, the convention will have been over. So what I thought as an exercise is an odd exercise uh, that you and I predict what's going to happen in the Republican convention and uh, see how we do. So let me go first. Okay. I think there's going to be a lot of lying. <laughs> okay. You're not asking okay. me for. See how for, you're I not do. asking me to rebut that, <laughs> are you? <laughs> so. No, I'm, I'm just. Uh, well, I just want you to come up with something as accurate as that. No, I think it's true. I think these fact checkers are going to be. They're going to be on tilt by the end of the week. Uh, it's going to be such an active week for them. It's impossible. I just heard him. He just uh, gave a speech. I, in I saw that. Yes. Uh, did you listen to it? Yes. 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 He was back with the conspiracy theories. They spied on me. They're trying to do it again. The density, the density of the lies is what's remarkable. There's almost nothing he says that isn't a lie. Yeah. Yeah. No, he lies for practice. There's no doubt about it. Uh, it's 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 work for him for a long time. Yeah, he's, he d gave this line today. He said this to them. He said, the only way I can lose is if it's rigged. Yeah. That, that's another way of saying, I can't win unless I cheat. 
Well, and it's also a way of setting up the result if he doesn't win. Listen, there are only, I've said this for a long time, there are only two outcomes here in, in Trump's uh, telling. One is he wins or it's rigged. I mean, that's been true from the beginning. But what he's setting up is if he does lose, this is going to be the launching pad for his next enterprise, which is to be the you know the leader of the resistance, the grievance resistance. You know, he'll go over to OAN and uh, he'll set up camp there. And the premise of it is going to be they stole the presidency from us. And it is a very frightening thing because there are people who, as you know, listen to him and follow him. You know, so I worry about not just the fabric of our democracy, but I worry about people in the streets doing irresponsible things, provoked by Donald Trump, telling them that the White House was stolen from him and by extension them. That is what he is setting up. And he may be setting that up before he leaves. I mean, in other words, he may be setting that up for November 4th. I have no doubt about it. That is his fallback plan. And, you know, even before the last election, if you go back and look, Al, he was saying that the only way they can win is if the election is rigged. And interestingly, because he didn't quite understand his own situation, you know, he was thinking in terms of the blue wall the so alleged blue wall, and he said the Electoral College is a rigged deal. Of course, it was rigged in his favor, it turns out. And the only way that he could win this time, and I think, look, there is a non-trivial chance that he can win. Uh, Most incumbent presidents get reelected. He is a guy who will do anything, so it's asymmetric warfare. This voting thing is very worrisome. But he doesn't have to win. He's going to lose the country by more than he lost last time. And he lost by 3 million votes last time. He will lose by more than that this time. But all he has to do is hang on to most of the states that he won last time. He could he could lose Pennsylvania and Michigan as long as he hangs on to Wisconsin and everything else that he won last time. He'd still get reelected. So, you know, it, this thing is not over, but certainly the odds don't favor him. And this is his fallback plan. I mean, when you say he has people who follow him, he has 40 percent of the country that just follows him. That that takes whatever he says. It's maybe it's thirty eight, and then there's another two percent who are with him for some other reason, uh, for their own self interest because they're rich or something. There's other. There might be some people who go like, okay, he's 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 full of crap, but I'll vote for him because it's in my self interest. But these people believe him. So what? is going to be because that's what we're going to see this week by the time people hear this will this will be all hashed out you'll hash it out on cnn other people hash it out all over the place it'll be all hashed out but how do we fight that you have won presidential elections Uh, not you yourself Mm -hmm. not you yourself yeah there are a couple other people involved yes right i got you i got you on here and i've not done that i've not won a presidential race. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how do we win? Tell us how to win, please. Well, first, please. For, first of all, you, you need to concentrate like a laser on that handful of, this is obvious, but on that handful of states. And uh, in addition, this year, Arizona is a bona fide uh, yep. swing state. You know, four years ago, Hillary Clinton's campaign spent more money in Arizona than Michigan, and that turned out to be a terrible decision. You really have to con- you have to have a kind of a hierarchy of states depending on their likelihood to go your way and what you need to win. And they had their prioritization wrong. They took Michigan for granted and paid a big price for that, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania as well, but Michigan in particular on the resources. There was a point at which they thought, okay, this is going to be a landslide, right? 
That yes. was when they were doing Arizona. Even they were talking about Texas even. We're not making that mistake this time. I mean, no. Joe Biden is going to be in Michigan and uh, Or at Wisconsin least virtually, and, yeah. Uh, uh, yes. But, or actually physically in some way. I yeah, think yeah. We'll he, get to yeah, a point where may, we're doing – he may well some version of what <laughs> yeah. Trump does, but with the masks and social distancing, as opposed to Tulsa. Yes, right. yeah, but Arizona is another uh, opportunity there, and a kind of insurance policy uh, against losses in some of these other states. And the reason being that fifty-four percent of the electorate there lives in Maricopa County, and a lot of it is one big suburb, and the suburbs are places where Trump has lost a lot of ground, particularly among women. You can see him trying to make it up now in a really crude and uh, obvious way. He tweeted over the weekend that I don't see how suburban women could vote for Biden, basically because he's going to, you know, these cities are or hotbeds of, of people yeah, are coming. Yeah, yeah, they're coming. They're coming. Those, <laughs> those, dark, those dark people are going to come and invade your suburbs. And I'm the thin blue line, you know, between them and you. But it, it is a record recognition on his part of a real problem that he has. But but uh, but the Phoenix area has that uh, has, you know, it's one big suburb in many ways. And he didn't win by that much last time. Hispanic voters are obviously a bigger play. I get I get so excited about these little uh, details from a strategic standpoint. Joe Biden was a challenged primary candidate because he is an an older white Irish Catholic, uh, working class guy from Scranton, Pennsylvania. And he doesn't really look like the emerging Democratic majority. But in a general, that's actually very helpful uh, to him. I think progressive policies should be stressed because progressive policies have now become mainstream policies. What seemed utopic and radical before, like the fact that everybody should have health care, now seems like a practical answer to a very emergent problem. And I think that was the brilliance of the Democratic Convention. He needs to stay where he is. He is a reassuring figure to, you know, to moderate voters in this country and to the suburban voters who are going to be necessary. Uh, so, you know, stressing him as a man of faith and family, of, of a military family, as someone who is rooted in the working class uh, neighborhoods of Pennsylvania, uh, I think we're all really, really smart because, you know, there's a reason, Al, that Donald Trump bought an impeachment trying to stop Joe Biden from becoming the nominee. And, and that this is the reason he is hard to demonize. And, you know, while they will try this week and you'll see a lot of it that Joe Biden has radical plans to tax and regulate. He's going to tax you. He's going to ruin the economy for the middle class. I can rebuild the economy from this virus. He can't do it. Um, you know, the immigration stuff will play uh, this crime stuff we mentioned. So, you know, I, I think that Biden needs to continue to be that reassuring figure that we saw at the convention. And I think he has to continue to hammer the hell out of him on the virus, because really what's happened on the virus is that there are a lot of people who sat in focus groups a year ago or eight months ago and said, you know, Donald Trump is a jerk. I don't like him personally. I don't like the way he behaves. But the economy's good. Things seem to be working well. He's kicking people in the ass I don't like. Uh, so, you know, I, I can tolerate that. I'll take the bad with the good. 
Now there's a cost associated with his personality. There's a cost associated with his jerkiness. I mean, his unwillingness and his lack of seriousness. Uh, This is what Obama addressed in his speech at the convention. That has a cost now. It's measured in the loss of human life. It's measured in the loss of jobs. It's measured in the loss of businesses. And I think that Democrats have to keep on him uh, about this. And now you know you know what's going to happen, Al, on his side, and he'll probably hint at this at the convention this week. But you saw traces of it right before. Last night, uh, we're, uh, as we're taping this, he did a, uh, a quick press conference at the White House to announce, you know, that he was fast-tracking, or the FDA, clearly at his request, was fast-tracking this convalescent plasma treatment. Well, you know, it's, it, it, we all want treatments and we all want a vaccine, but we also want them to be safe. You know, it's like hydroxychloroquine, which turned out to be, in his words, you know, in the word that he prefers, he wouldn't say this. A miracle. Uh, he called it a miracle, but it turned out this actually <laughs> turned out to be a hoax. Yeah, and actually could kill you yeah. if you had a heart. But getting back to the campaign, circle a date on your calendar, and I think it will be the most important date of the uh, election, and that's uh, September 29th, the first debate. Because really what the Republicans have done because they haven't been able to demonize or scare people about Biden. Their argument has been that he doesn't have the mental acuity or strength or stamina to be president. And, you know, this has been Trump's big theme. Biden took a a big meat axe to it by delivering an energetic acceptance speech. But the big test is September 29th, the first debate. Uh, they've set the, the bar very low for Joe Biden. Uh, and I think if Biden comes and uh, is the guy we saw giving that acceptance speech, if he is strong and coherent, reassuring that he, if he parries with, with Trump, but I think, you know, not in a way that he's just trading insults with him. Let's talk about prepping a candidate for a debate, because you've had the experience with Obama of having that. For good and bad, yes. Yes, in that first disastrous uh, debate against Romney, which uh, I remember the president calling me in, in 14, 2014, and it was the night before my first debate. And he, that's not why he called me. He was just checking in. And I said, oh, God, I just for some reason, I, I wasn't nervous my first time I ran. I am nervous now. And he said, because it's a play and you have to learn your lines. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I said, oh, yeah. And I read from your book that he really just hated this process because he's more discursive. He wants to explain really why uh, he has a position. But strategically, you're saying September 29th is the next huge important uh, moment in this campaign, mm-hmm. that, that first debate. I think it's the moment, I think. And you're preparing him. Yes. And this is kind of what I wanted, yeah. to, also your strategy for beating him. Debating him is different than debating anybody else, yes. as, as Hillary saw. Because Hillary, by any normal terms, just wiped the floor with him. Yes. What's the approach that Biden takes in that debate? First of all, just a word on on uh, a, a couple of things, and then we'll get to how he has to prepare. He, he has two things going for him. One was the one I mentioned, uh, Trump has set the bar low. The second is the history of presidents, and we tried to resist this, the history of presidents in first debates when they're running for re-election is really dismal. Presidents haven't debated in four years. They haven't had anyone sit, uh, being treated as an equal on a stage 
for four years uh, in their grill. They tend to want to be very defensive. You know, it, it almost always is a disaster. Clinton escaped that against Dole in 96, but generally the history of it has been bad. So that, that is to his benefit. First of all, you prepare for a debate by simulating everything that you think you are going to see. Um, you, you, know, you, 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 will, you set up a replica of what the stage is going to look like. You have someone play the moderator who has studied the moderator and has a, you know, a good sense of not only what questions they'll ask, but how they will ask them. And you get someone to play the opponent. This is important casting. Not everyone can play Donald Trump. Uh, just a sidelight on this. Back in 2008, Jennifer Granholm played Sarah Palin in our debate preps for Biden for the vice presidential debate. And she captured Palin's speech patterns, all her idiosyncrasies, even Can I Call You Joe? I think she forecast that. It seems so uh, crazy that we were like laughing, saying, there's no way it can be like this. And she said, no, nope, I've watched all the film of her debating. I'm telling you, this is how she's going to be. And it turned out that she forecast a lot of the moments that we saw in that debate, and Biden was well prepared for it. So having the right person uh, who really can channel Donald Trump, and here's the thing, Al, preparing for Donald Trump isn't that hard in this way. It's not like he's going to come in with a new strategy. It's not like he's going to be a different person. You know, what happened with us in Denver in 2012 was Mitt Romney shed his conservative casings and returned to being the moderate Republican that he was in Massachusetts. And we weren't prepared for that. He didn't come and use a lot of the material that he had used during the campaign. We didn't prepare well for it, and Obama didn't make the adjustment on the stage. Uh, that made it a very difficult debate for us in addition to the other handicaps that I mentioned earlier about being a president running for re-election. Donald Trump's not going to do that. He, he doesn't develop new material. Let me ask you this. Let me, let me ask a question about that because he doesn't work new material, so he's going to lie throughout the debate. Is, is that a correct assumption? Yes. Yes. Okay, yes. Yeah, I, I think that you, you know, you've got to count on that. Yes. You, so here's a question. Would this be a good approach? You're lying. Yeah. You always lie. No, but I mean, the thing is, you cannot, you cannot do that every answer. Now, what might be a good idea, and I haven't discussed <laughs> this with anybody. Yes, you can. What, what might be a good idea is <laughs> saying at the beginning, when he tells his first lie, saying what the president said is, is a lie. It's, it's, it is an abject, bald-faced lie. And just to all of you watching out there, I want to direct you to a website. Whatever it is, you can choose a nonpartisan website and say they are watching this debate. They are judging what we say. I really urge you to watch it because what you're going to find is that most of what the president says tonight will not be true. But is there anything to coming at him in a way he might not expect, which is you, sir, are a pathological liar, for example. And then of the 15 to 20,000 lies that he has told, just have at your disposal 15 of the most ridiculous, bald-faced lies that even his supporters are going like, yeah. Yes, I think those are good things to, to do, uh, but you can only do them once. 
you know, and so it gets tiresome after a while and you can't return to the same devices. Uh, you know, I think he also has to prepare for provocations. You know, uh, if I'm Trump, I want to yep. I want to get inside Biden's head and I and I razz him about Hunter, and, you know, because he knows that that's a, how sensitive Biden is about his children. Um, maybe he says something about him, uh, you know, hiding behind his, his son, Bo. You know, that would enrage him. And then there's the big question of, you know, I'm a big I'm a big fan of jujitsu in dealing with Trump because it's very easy to get into a brawl with him. And there will be moments in that debate where Biden may have to get into a bit of a brawl with him. But at some point you want to take Trump's negative energy and talk to the country and use it as an example of what we've seen for four years and really challenge people to ask themselves, can we go through another four years like this, you know, of the crazy tweets and the pandemic. One of the lies he's going to tell is, I saved millions of lives. Yeah. He's going to do that. And he's going to say, by closing down China. And he didn't actually close down China really at all. It, right. it was not a flight ban. People came in. And also, it was already here. Yeah. <laughs> and also, yeah. it came through Well, Europe. I mean, his problem is, first of all, his problem is people are living this. But secondly, you know, most uh, of the other industrialized countries in the world ha- faced the same challenges and handled it. You know, he often says, "We're, you know, this is all about testing. And he said, yeah, Japan's having terrible times, you know. Japan, I think they, the last time I looked, and I'm sure the number's higher now, Japan, which is about a third of our size, a little more than a third of our size, had lost about 1,200 or 1,400 people. We're up to 176,000. So he may play the million, I'd say millions of lives card. If, if Biden's skillful, I think that people will come out questioning Trump's mental acuity and certainly his, you know, his mendacity will be on display, but his, uh, his, his acuity uh, may be as, as well. What I wouldn't advise is just 90 minutes of uh, trading schoolboy taunts with Trump, because if you get into a pissing match with Trump, he always comes with a larger tank. You know, and uh, and I don't think that's productive. I think you have to pick your spots where you're really going to go at it with him. And then you got to pick your spots where you kind of say to the country, this is this is him. This is this is the president of the United States. And we can't afford it. You know, frankly, we we, we can't afford another four years. So that is a nuance that they're going to have to work on. But the key is to make sure that that nothing happens on that stage that Biden hasn't been prepared for that. No question comes that he hasn't contemplated that no uh, rejoinder or, you know, insult or something that comes from Trump that he hadn't heard before. And the more that this is all familiar to him, and this is true, not just of Biden, but any candidate, the less that you have to ad lib and the more that you come prepared for whatever is is likely to come your way, the better you're going to do. Isn't isn't the trick though, and I think that this that there is a trick to this, which is being able to have that stuff down, but also speak like a human being. Yes, 
and not just be regurgitating talking points. And I think that's what President Obama was bridling about, was he felt that those were lines. No, you're right. You know, the, I will tell you a story. I mean, in between the uh, first and second debate, he knew. I mean, he didn't know when he left the stage, but he quickly knew when he saw what everybody said about the debate that it was it didn't go well. And he said to us, frankly, you know, I am a lawyer and I'm trained to sort of answer questions literally. And this is not really debating. This is acting. You have to be prepared with your lines. You have to deliver them, as you say, in a way that's natural and quotable. And, you know, he said that's a whole different thing. And I, I, I resist it. I mean, your insight into him was really good. But you know what? He did it. He did it. The next debate, you know, he had he, there, he had 14 answers that he wrote, uh, diagrammed out on one page in the back, and he knew exactly what he wanted to do. But they weren't, as you say, a recitation of facts. They were bits, you know, that he developed. <laughs> right. And writing them down is a good idea. I used to learn my lines, you know, when, in SNL, for example. I'd write them down and write them down and write them down. Okay, we're going to take a uh, quick break. We'll be right back with the great David Axelrod. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage and a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at amazon.com slash instant eraser foundation. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at byte.com. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome back. We're talking to David Axelrod. Let's talk about, you are talking about suburban women, and in, in 18, to me, the number one issue was health care. And health care is related, of course, to the pandemic and also to the fact that this guy actually said, who knew health care <laughs> was, was so complicated. complicated yeah. <laughs> Clearly... Americans want to build on the ACA. This guy wants to destroy it. That's all he's been after. He wants to destroy anything Obama did. And to me, the one way to get the suburban women, they don't want to lose their health care. They don't, they don't want to lose their health insurance. Remember, I think Obama's biggest mistake may have, President Obama, President Obama's biggest mistake may have been if you like your policy, you can keep it. And that wasn't actually the case. Right. He, he would say that, too. 
And I, yes, and I think that the thing that scared me about a Bernie candidacy, I respect Bernie, and he, boy, oh boy, he played an important role in moving us <laughs> uh, to a more progressive place. But what worried me about single payer was saying, no private insurance. There's not, a, there's not another right, country right. in the world, not a developed country in the world. They all have universal health care. All the other developed countries, they all have private insurance. And what I was really concerned about was are suburban women going to go like, wait a minute, we love the, our insurance that we get through our employer. We really like, I want to keep that. Yes. I think that we win on this again. Because he has absolutely no credibility at all. He said, I'm going to repeal and replace and replace with something terrific. And it didn't happen. What he wanted to replace it with was awful, was awful. And Americans saw that, and you saw we picked up 41 seats. Right. And those were a lot of suburban women going like, oh, boy, no. I agree with that, Al. You, you know that what we're going to hear during this convention week is they they are not going to um, allow for the fact that Biden did not endorse Medicare for all with no private insurance. They are going to assign to him, and they're going to use the fact that Kamala Harris was a co-sponsor of the bill, and that Biden and Bernie Sanders, you know, worked through some policy positions. Though, by the way, did not endorse uh, in the party platform Medicare for all. Um, no. So they, but they will. You know, as you pointed out at the top, Trump isn't exactly bounded by the facts, and he is going to try and hammer this notion that, you know, Democrats would take health care away from 180 million Americans when the reality is Democrats wouldn't take health care away from 180 million Americans, but Trump would take health care away from tens of millions of Americans who rely on the ACA uh, to get their health care. And, uh, you know, it's laughable. I heard someone say, well, what are his uh, objectives for the second term? And say, well, he's going to come forward with his comprehensive health care plan. Uh, it's been five years, you know, since he promised that he was going to replace the ACA with something that would be more affordable and better. And we haven't ever seen it. What we've seen is his, his desire to destroy the ACA, but we haven't seen any replacement, because the truth of the matter is he has none. So Biden ought to score big in a debate uh, on that. I mean, that ought to be a real winning sequence for him. People want to build on the ACA. They don't want to destroy it. That, that we know. We just know right. that. Yeah. Well, I think there's a lot of empirical evidence of that uh, as well. And, you know, like I said, things that seemed, you know, utopian or radical in the past, like, for example, I didn't think it was then, but the public option in the healthcare exchanges, that is a wildly popular idea now. Absolutely. Uh, so, Absolutely. And that, and that was Joe Lieberman. Yes. Joe Lieberman vetoed that. I mean, I was, I was there, as you know. Yes. Uh, I, in your book, Believer, you talk about when that passed the House. Yes. And uh, you were there. Yes. And uh, it struck me because m most people in public life don't uh, talk about sobbing. Yeah. Yeah, it's not good. I almost got drummed out of the political consultants union for admitting that I, that <laughs> for I admitting sobbed. that you sobbed yeah. at a certain point. Yeah, but I did that night, and I'll tell you why. Uh, you know, um, when we started down the road on the ACA, you know, I was his political advisor, and my political advice was, "This is very risky." Uh, you know, seven presidents have tried, seven failed, some at great 
political cost and we're right in the middle of this recession. He, in turn, said, yeah, but what are we here for? Are we supposed to put our approval rating on the shelf and admire it for eight years? Are we supposed to draw down on it and try and do things that are important for people? And he went through the whole case as to why this was important. You know, I used to say, I love the guy so much because he listened to me so little. So we forged ahead. And as you know, because you were there and helped us, uh, we, the thing almost died a thousand deaths. So when on, in March of 2010, when it passed, we were all gathered in the Roosevelt Room in the White House, which is, as you know, the ornate conference room across from the Oval Office. And the votes were coming in, and it was clear it was going to pass. We knew it was going to pass. The president was there. Biden was there. Everybody was there. And as the final votes came in, I just got up and I went into my office and I closed the door. My office is right across the hall from there. And I did sob. I didn't even know why at first, but but you know why. And I wrote about why. Because I have a daughter, Lauren, who has had epilepsy all her life. She started seizing when she was seven months old. We couldn't get any control over the seizures for uh, 19 years. And in those early years, I was a reporter at the Chicago Tribune. I had insurance, and I thought that it was adequate. And I found out it wasn't because they wouldn't pay for her medications, which turned out to be quite expensive. They wouldn't pay for any sort of second opinions. Uh, so I had to pay out of pocket. And I was very quickly uh, going bankrupt. I ultimately left the newspaper business in part because of that. And that night, that night I thought about that horrible period in our lives and I realized that there were families all over this country who wouldn't have to go through that agony because of what he had done and you had done and we had all done to help. And all of a sudden, you know, it all became very real. It's so easy to get caught up in the, you know, who's winning the red team or the blue team or, you know, who's got the power and so on. But the real question is, what do you do with it? Are you, do you do something with it that, to actually help people? And I knew this would help, and I could almost see the faces of people that, that, that it could help because all I had to do was look in the mirror and remember my own experience, my family's experience. And subsequent to that, and I'm sure you had this experience many times, people would come up to me with tears in their eyes saying the Affordable Care Act saved my life or the Affordable Care Act saved the life of my child. You know, I will be forever grateful to have been a small part of that. And you were a bigger part because you cast a vote that made the that made the difference. But I yelled at you too. So you we'll you, you did yell at me. Yeah, bit. I can recite yeah. the whole speech, by the way. So you remember this? I'll set it up a little. Yeah, bit. and then I'll give your speech. Okay, uh, Scott Brown had just won. Yes, defeated for the Kennedy seat, which meant we didn't have sixty seats in the Senate. We had sixty from the time I got there right till then. And that's when we did this. That's when we passed it in the Senate when, with 60 votes, right? right? So then uh, Scott Brown gets elected. Now they now we have 59. So we can't do that anymore. We can't do that. And now the path forward is the House has to pass exactly what we passed. Right, which the House was loath to do. We, we have this caucus there right after Brown gets elected. It was like a, it was like a one-day retreat. Right. So we're all there, and it was outside the building. I think it was at the Nationals ballpark. So the president comes with uh, the press in tow, with the media in tow. He answers questions. People who are running for re-election get to ask him questions about their state. Yeah. <laughs> then, <laughs> then he leaves and takes the press with him. Now we're alone. Now it's our caucus at the retreat with you, Paul Begala, and Tim Kaine. 
Tim Kaine was the head of the DNC at the time. I'm sitting. I'm sitting there going like, "All right, now we're going to hear the plan. Mm-hmm. Now we're going to hear it." Now Bagala, I think, goes first. You each do five minutes. He does five minutes. I'm waiting. Nothing. 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 So finally, if when the second guy, whether it was Bagala or Kane, is halfway through, I'm going like, "Oh, I see. It's just Axelrod. Axelrod. We're going to hear it from Axelrod. We're here. What they're going <laughs> to do? That's what we're going to hear. Okay. Good. All right. All right. What are we going to do? We're going to get it done. We're going to get the house to do it. Okay. Good. You start talking. First minute goes by. No mention of healthcare. Second minute goes by. None. None. Third. None. And then let's take it from the fifth moment. Okay. What? Uh, you, okay. You, what did I so say? So Al Franken <laughs> gets called on, uh, and he says, "I am livid." Is how it began. I am livid. I am doing a slow burn over here. That's what I was doing. <laughs> I want to know. When the president of the United States is going to tell the House to pass this bill. And, uh, and I'm looking at, I'm standing up there, and I know that we were 20 votes shy at the time Brown went down in the House. People who said they absolutely would not vote for the Senate bill, it didn't have public option, the, it wasn't generous enough. We were working with Pelosi on an hour-to-hour basis as she was trying to sway these members. Harry Reid, the majority leader, was a party to these. And Harry was sitting in the front row, kind of towing the floor. Because, you know, part of being a White House aide is you you are sent to these meetings to take a ritual beating when people are unhappy. You are a human sacrifice. You are chum thrown in the water. And Harry was perfectly content. And I love Harry Reid. Perfectly content to let me take the beating because that was my... Uh, my job. But I, I mean, then I started doing a slow burn, knowing what was happening. And I don't know if you know, remember what I what I, remember what I said, but I said, Senator, Senator, if you have 218 votes in the House on a piece of paper in your pocket, I suggest you ankle across the rotunda and give them to Speaker Pelosi, uh, because I don't think she has that list. And then what did I say? What did I say? I, I don't remember after that, everything blanked uh-huh. out. I remember what I what said. Did, what, I what did you what say? Said. That's the president's job. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. Right. I said, that's what the president does. Yeah. Look, I, I completely understood your restiveness and that of others. You weren't, you know, you were a little more overt, but you were speaking for a lot of people in that room uh, at the time. And I understood that. But from my standpoint, we were doing every freaking thing we could uh, to try and flip the house and as soon as we got the sign from Pelosi that she had the votes we were going to do it but we had to give her the room to do what she does but then you wrote in your book something I took incredible offense (laughs) I think I know the line but go ahead Uh, you said that Al Franken who had been uh, you know an actor or a comedian at SNL or comic actor or something like that it was a good thing he did comic acting because he uh, he couldn't be a dramatic actor because he was pretending. <laughs> I don't know if I said pretending, <laughs> but I, ju- I did say that you were better off in comedy than drama. You 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 suggested that I was putting this on, <laughs> and I was not. And by the way, later that night, first of all, other factors in this is that Obama's chief of staff Rahm Emanuel wanted to bail and go to a lesser package, in which case, I don't know, you would have sobbed 
for the lesser package. I was not for the. I mean, that was. I was not in for the lesser package. I know, but we knew that was up in the air too. I knew that, and then also that night, that night, the night I yelled at you was the night the president announced that they were going. That's what, exactly what he was going to do: was get the votes in the house. That's right. Yeah, Am it I may right? have been. It may have been. Yeah. And what did I, I wrote you a note. Do you remember the note? I do. I still have the note. It was your welcome. Oh, yes. Yeah, that was it. Yeah. No, I still have that, man. It's a treasured heirloom of mine uh, that I have uh, in my desk. So let's go back to Lauren. Yes. Your daughter, Lauren, because she's so lovely. Yes. I met her. I met her once. You did. You had dinner dinner with us. Yes. Yeah, and uh, my goodness, she's beautiful. Yes, yes. And uh, happy. Yeah, and, and resilient. I mean, she's been through so much, you know, 13 hospitalizations, 20 different medications, some of which, you surgeries, know, surgery, brain, brain surgery, surgeries, yeah. and just a whole gamut of torture. You, you, we were talking about where she's living during COVID. Yeah, yeah. Lauren lives at a, a, a place called Misericordia on the north side of Chicago. It was uh, actually started by a sister of mercy, uh, named Rosemary Conley, still alive, still running the place. It started in 1969. She took a program that the archdiocese had and and uh, really expanded it. Um, and it is a phenomenal place. They have living uh, arrangements for all different forms of of of, of uh, intellectual disability. You know, from very intensive places where you can get 24 hour seven-day-a-week attention to. Um, my daughter lives in an apartment with, uh, on, a, on campus uh, with two other women. Tassilla's in the community. Uh, they have uh, incredible uh, work programs and on and off the campus and um, a range of activities. My, my daughter's always busy. She's got lots of friends, uh, and, they've, and they've done a splendid job of protecting them in this virus. It's the sort of place because... It is a larger campus, and you you could see real vulnerability there to the virus. But because they've been so assiduous about uh, it in terms of who gets in and who gets out and uh, taking temperature and testing and so on, um, they've really avoided that thus far, and I'm knocking on wood that they uh, continue to. But um, And, you know, uh, it's just been a, a miraculous place. Uh, for her. And Al, this is something where I take issue with some of our progressive friends who, with, with all good intentions, because we have a history in this country of large settings uh, where people are warehoused and forgotten, uh, they have taken a sort of one size fits all. Everybody with disabilities should live in group homes in the community. And um, not, you know, we should not assume that people with disabilities don't have various needs and wants and approaches uh, to to life, just like people who don't have uh, disabilities. And for my child, for my daughter, she loves the socialization of where she lives. Uh, and she is a happy person because of it. My wish for this country is that we develop a range of high-quality options for people with disabilities uh, and that we fund them properly 
so that there and they and, and we and we provide the proper oversight which there is here uh, to make sure that they are delivering on their promises uh, to these people. But you know, we we feel very very lucky that she is there. Last time we talked, uh, I asked about Lauren and. The, the thing you said to me, which, which was funny to me and really struck me, which was when when this uh, pandemic started, you know, you basically gave Lauren the choice yes. of, uh, are, you know, you want to come live with us or stay where you are. And she <laughs> and, and she chose to be where she yeah. was. And you, what you said to me was, you know, she'd be so bored. Well, and she knew that, you know, that, but it was so gratifying. She said, you know, I'd rather stay with my friends. And that was such the smart choice because she would have been bored. They, she, she, if she came home, one of the conditions was that she would have to be quarantined because they didn't want her coming back with, with the virus. That's part of how they keep people safe. Um, and so we couldn't go out. We couldn't do stuff. Uh, and really, it's hard to do that now anyway. And she knew that. And But I was just so gratified that basically what she was saying is, you know, my life here, this is my life and I love it. And I don't want to give that up. David, thank you. Thank you. And what I really meant it uh, in a way that uh, I won't. Uh, go into you have been an amazing friend well to me and I thank you for doing and, this and, and, thank you and so to much. me al so uh, it goes both ways and it's a pleasure to be with you always so thanks for inviting me you're welcome <laughs> well i i hope you enjoyed uh listening that beautiful music is by leo kotke the great leo kotke i want to thank peter ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me DJ and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. 
I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.